Hi everyone, welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Every day, our first hour is a general discussion of production and IT-related topics, and we're here just to basically answer your submitted questions in that first hour. Our second hour is typically a deeper dive into a topic, and today we are really excited because we're doing a retrospective of our NAB coverage, and we are incredibly lucky to have some members of the crew from that production here, including the man who was in charge of everything, Brian Shand, who wasn't able to join us for the early retrospective show when we kind of broke it down just a few days or maybe a week or so after the actual coverage. But there were so many things we learned and so many of the people who were involved in this. Uh, we just want to uh, talk about it, give them credit, and kind of go back over what worked and what didn't, because we did a lot of things we weren't used to doing here on the show for our live NAB coverage. All that said, let's see what our viewers and or producers are interested in today. And it looks like Alex isn't in the panel right now. So I'm going to start off by reading uh, my own first question here. Or it's not mine, but the first question today, which comes from... Uh, Oh, wait, I had it in the wrong mode. Uh, from John Foltz in Sealing Grove, Pennsylvania. And he says, my execs are woeful on Zoom and they're not technical. I will never get to office hour standards, but how about an Insta360 link, a Sure MV7 mic, and an arm and a pair of Linsole in-ear monitors? Attach it all to a hub, one USB cable to the computer, and done. Jeffrey Powers, do you think that will work? Uh, it will work. I would probably not do the Insta360 link. I would probably just do a Brio. And the reason why is because it's, you know, that PTZ camera, even though you can hand move the PTZ camera, a lot of people will probably not want to do that. I would probably just uh, throw the Brio on there and it look very stationary. Um, unless they ask for a 360 link, then, uh, then you can show them how to do it. But if they don't want to touch anything, then this is just going to be something they, they'll need to touch from uh, time to time. Cool. And Jeffrey's going to take over the readership in just a second. Mickey Makachor, what, what say you? Yeah, um, just one thing out that those uh, the, the, that camera and also microphone would be um, certainly a good solution. Though, uh, in terms of the hub, I would definitely go with uh, a Thunderbolt hub, not a USB hub. Um, devices that... Uh, need to be able to deliver audio and video in real time need to need a a, a pathway that does not um that is uh not impeded in terms of both bandwidth and also latency and a usb hub usb hubs typically have that um that latency so uh, i'd go thunderbolt if you would run the th things through a hub excellent uh, jeffrey what's our next question so, Oops. oh, wow. Okay, so Donna Eisenberg from uh, Dharamsala, India, goes, we have a Sony FX3 with Sony FE, it's a number there, uh, lens. When using clear zoom, uh, we see a small but per uh, perceptible decrease in focus sharpness that becomes more pronounced when encoding to a smaller H.264 file. Is this to be expected? I don't know. You know, we had, um, and I'm trying to remember who it was that came on and talked us through the Sony stuff. Um, he's here occasionally. And when we saw the new FX3 and he walked us through it, he was noting that clear zoom is a technology that, that pops up from the sensor uh, a larger output 
Now, I don't recall seeing any kind of fuzziness on his side when he did that in our demos. I have known uh, a lot of occurrences where somebody has popped up the raster of a picture and it does get noticeably fuzzy, but I don't remember seeing that on his. Uh, if you're seeing that small but perceptible decrease in focus sharpness, I'm, I'm wondering if it's built in and that's always going to happen or if maybe there is some pathway that is taking less than the full sensor data as your native signal and then if you if it's doing that if it's dumbing down the signal before it gets to where you're trying to zoom into it you're going to get less sharpness that's just the way things work if it's taking the whole sensor signal you shouldn't really have to deal with that unless you get into really extreme zooms that's been always my experience ronnie you had some thoughts about this well, uh, I would check if there are some um, stabilizing going on. Uh, we've seen this on the A7S3s when we have stabilizer active. Okay, that makes sense, yeah, because that's trying to take a shaky thing and, and make it less shaky, so a little bit of loss of resolution wouldn't surprise me. Oh, Alex, you've made it. Are you okay? Is everything set? Yeah, um, new bug <laughs> that <laughs> we found. Uh, so I couldn't, I um, I was already in the in the space, and then... I went to slides and I went to my slide, but not, I didn't change any state. And when I came back, it was stuck in that state. And then I couldn't turn the camera back on. So I restarted my switcher, which I shouldn't have to do. And then I couldn't turn the video on. So I just kept on re restarting the switcher and then finally dropped back to a breakout room and then had to actually, I was in a state in Zoom where they couldn't, no one could see me. Like it was like a, so there was ah, a interesting. deep bug. <laughs> so sorry for being gone, but it was, so we'll have to look back at, we'll take a look at this, this, because I literally was a kind of a ghost, like JJ couldn't see me. So I had to leave the whole meeting and then come back in and then recheck things. So anyway, sorry for- Just in case you- Still think we're just a show. We're also a test bed. <laughs> we're yeah, trying new things. We, we sure did Alex is. I don't know exactly what we were testing there, but it wasn't. But none of it was good. Um, there you all right. go. <laughs> all right. Ready for the next question? Absolutely. Let's go. Uh, next next question is from T.J. Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and T.J. asks: I noticed that the presenters at Google I/O had a double lavalier mics side by side. In a setup like this, is each one connected to a separate radio pack? Mickey, help us out. Uh, yeah, uh, two transmitters, and that is a pretty standard practice for double miking. Absolutely. Javier? Yeah, what Mickey said, it's like very common to have a, a redundancy in those microphones in case something goes uh, wrong. You have to, to have two transmitters because if you put the two mics in the same transmitter, you would be defeating the purpose of having a redundancy. And you have to coordinate the frequencies so those transmitters won't uh, intermodulate each other. Alex? Yeah, and there's actually mounts for that to, to make sure that they mount together so that they're pretty much exactly the same. One of the, the two things that we see is, A, that they're on different frequencies, obviously, pretty far apart so they don't get stomped on. And the other thing that we find is that a lot of times, like with some of, the, some of them that are um, using the micro dot, we end up, something can get dislodged. And so one starts to get a little staticky because it's not quite on there. And so, yeah, the whole architecture wants to be completely separate if you can. I remember the first time I bought a Sony ECM-77, which is their little tiny mic. I opened the box, and the first thing I saw was the double mount. And I went, oh, they're making me buy a second one? <laughs> and then I investigated, and that's exactly why. they, you know, In a real mission-critical thing, you never want one point of failure if you can possibly avoid it. Let's go to the next question. Uh, next question is from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. And he said, what are the most useful apps for automation on the Mac, PC, Android, and iOS? 
Alex, what are your useful ones? Uh, you know, the, the the ones that I use are generally all built into the into the OS. Um, I have a tendency not to add any uh, automation to the systems um, outside of that because I use so many different computers. So the real danger of using automation oftentimes at an OS level is that you end up, um, so shortcuts is the one on the Mac that I use a lot, um, but I really, uh, shortcuts are the only one that I use. And, and it's because I don't want to be connected to one platform or, or not one platform, but one um, device because I have so many of them. That makes sense to me. Jeffrey? On the reverse uh, side, I use uh, a couple of different apps for video production that are automation apps. And one of them is Top Director, which you can get the one that actually is a software switcher. But there's another one that uh, lets, you, uh, lets you see all your NDI video cameras, which is really nice. The other one uh, I haven't used in a little while, but it's a great app. And it's, it's like the Stream Deck. It's called Touch Portal. And it allows you, you, you put the uh, software on the computer. And then, of course, uh, you, you run the app. And then it connects up to that, that computer in question. And then you can create as many buttons as you want to do any type of switching. And for years, I've had Automator on my machines. I'm hoping they never deprecate it because I've got one function. I have a client who sends me massive uh, PowerPoints, and they're all single file. And there's an automatic script, Automator script I built years ago to take them and break them out and put them in folders as single files so I can use them in my videos. And I just don't ever want to lose that. So, uh, Apple, if you're listening, please never deprecate Automator, even though it's really old and long in the tooth now. Next question. Next question is from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. And Chris asks, on site surveys for another contractor, do you normally just charge your day rate or hourly? I hate doing hourly billing. Uh, seems like those clients always go back and forth on the bill. <laughs> Mickey. Uh, this is coming from uh, the perspective of uh, film and TV uh, for, for location scouts or, or uh, recce's. We typically do full day, full day rate. Um, because typically after uh, the visiting the locations, we would then immediately jump into a meeting where we would discuss what we uh, what we saw, which locations are best, what's uh, the the pros and cons of each location, and also it eventually goes down to uh, discussing specifics of the script as well. Jeffrey Powers, I have three rates. I have a half day rate, I have a full day rate, and I have a project rate. I don't do hourly uh, because most of the time, all the projects will include hours before, hours after prep, and uh, and as Mickey said, you know, trying to figure out what happened and how it can be fixed for the next time. So, uh, and, and that's so basically that's a four-hour block for a half day, an eight-hour block for a full day, and then of course, if there's more than eight hours, you have to we then uh, start thinking about project rates. Alex. Yeah, the only time I do a half day rate is for a for a uh, reconnaissance is is if I'm uh, if I can pack other things into it. So there's sometimes I can pack things into a trip, and I don't want to charge the client a full day if I'm going to only be spending a couple hours there. If I'm able to do those other things, but if I'm going down specifically to L.A. or New York or whatever, obviously I'm charging the days that it takes to do that. So so it just depends on on where it is and whether it's local or not. And but you do want to calculate as, as Mickey pointed out the meetings the 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 travel, the time there, all those things are things that are part of what it costs to actually do the thing. 
And I just have two rules. I try never to charge by the hour if I can possibly avoid it because every moment you're alive, you're losing inventory. That's number one. And the second thing is that if I'm good and fast, I make less than somebody who's bad and slow. That doesn't make any sense to me. So I agree with everybody that I try to build in blocks. I try to do project quotes and just make them smart enough so that there's enough pad in there. Or if I want to spend a couple hours on something, it doesn't hurt me. And, and the only thing okay. I'll say is that, it, you know, it's it. we all have trouble finding clients at times, but just always have it in the back of your head. There are clients that will be reasonable. Like if your clients aren't reasonable, you should be trying to figure out how to get rid of them. Like, you know, just, just to be clear, like you should be working at how do I get work them out of the system? Not how do I, you know, and some of them are clients that are difficult, aren't necessarily a problem. If you figure out how to, you know, do the, be the whisperer for that client, they're very dedicated to you because no one else wants to work with them. Um, and so the clients that are difficult aren't necessarily, they can actually be a really steady income um, if you figure, if you can figure it out. But if you can't figure it out and you just can't mesh with them, and especially ones that are really back and forth over every little penny, you should be trying to figure out how to move them out of your pipeline. Um, it doesn't mean you fire them that day, but you should be really looking at marketing and how you talk to you know other folks and trying to work them out of your system because there's plenty of people out there that will hire you and, and are reasonable and just want good work. Lots of wisdom in that answer. Let's move on to the next question. Next question is uh, from TJ Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And TJ asks, Google I.O. was yesterday. The keynote was two hours. What do we think of the production? I thought the pace was painfully slow and interrupted by pause for applause breaks. The screen on the stage was pretty cool, though. John Pretto. You I watch, thought, it? watch it. I thought the production was was fine. It's a huge improvement over their presentation they did out in New York a couple of months back. And Wall Street likes it because Google's up and Microsoft's down today. So there you go. Jeffrey. Uh, yeah, the production was fine. It was two hours long. And that was a little bit, they could have, they could have shored up a few things. And uh, you noticed when they were, uh, when each pre many presenters, when they were presenting, they, you could tell that they were reading from the card because they would blow by their pauses and, and their and their uh, their inflections down and things like that. So the overall, it, it worked. Uh, apparently, there was uh, a couple things trying to distract. There was uh, apparently there was also a hawk that nested in the amphitheater there, and it was flying around. And a lot of the uh, a lot of the people in the amphitheater not, noted that on like Instagram. Interesting, Alex. How often you get a hawk in your keynote? That's all I can say. Uh, you know, so I, you know, I think that uh, you know the the hard part that Google has beyond just the keynote itself is that they've canceled so many projects so often that they just it's hard to get excited about a lot of those announcements because you're just not sure. You're like, well, we'll see. Like, you know, and, and see how it goes. And that's the big challenge that Google has on a regular basis is is just following through, um, you know, with with what they're announcing. Um, I think that the it looked pretty good. The colors are not something that I would normally use in a keynote. You know, I think that, you know, I tend not to put warm colors behind people. Um, it, it tends, I, I find that that tends to be hard. Um, but, um, but overall, I think it was, uh, um, it was, it was a reasonable production. Um, that, venue is very hard to do production in because it's outdoors and it's it's a it's a really difficult location so it's it's always a challenge let's go to the next question uh, next question is from james babbitt in san diego and james asks uh, what methods uh, do you uh, do the panelists recommend to remove unwanted items from a photo in the iphone iphone photo library javier 
Uh, to get rid like from st stuff in the background or like brands or like little things that you're gonna take out, I use this software called uh, Photometer. That is, it was the one that it was called Pixelmator Photo, and it's iOS and uh, it runs in any every iOS device. Uh, it's like very simple to use. It has like this repair button you just like draw around, and just like a pretty good job. It's like very intuitive, very easy to use. Uh, I think it has a, a free uh, like tier with some of the tools. Uh, take a look at it. I think it's like really, really simple to use. Yeah, I think a lot of those algorithms are now pretty well known and are in a lot of the software where you just run your finger over it and it disappears. So they're, they're doing a lot of work in AI in that area. Uh, Alex? I, I use Affinity Photo a lot for a lot of things, but I will say that Photoshop is still the standard for removing things. It still has, um, you know, it's, um, we would be remiss to not say that Photoshop still has some of the best removal tools that we've seen. Uh, do do also look at the the backfill tools that are happening with AI. If you watch, if you start watching those things that are that are happening right now, um, people are filling those things in with with AI algorithms uh, very effectively. So um, we expect to see more of that in the future. Does Adobe still call that content aware fill? Is that what you're looking uh, there's for? There's a lot of different tools. And, okay. you know, that's the whole thing is there's like eight or nine tools in there that from cloning to content aware fill to smart, I think it's like smart brush or something. There's a couple, but there's there's a lot of different ways to, to remove those right now. Excellent. All right. And so hopefully, James, we've taken care of you. Let's go on to one more question. Uh, next question is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. And Andy asks, what are the best practices for checking network connectivity during site surveys? Ronnie Hossoy in Tromsø, Norway is here with us today. And Ronnie, can you help us? Well, it depends, like Mickey says. Uh, uh, if we're going to stream, uh, let's say, uh, full HD, uh, 50 frames, we uh, we tend to bring our laptops or routers uh, uh, to, to measure the, the bandwidth directly on the cable. Um, the important thing here is to bring the router that you're actually going to use because there could be limitations on uh, what's called netting. Uh, some of the venues doesn't uh, allow for uh, our router to be connected. So that is uh, definitely a thing to check. Excellent. Uh, Jeffrey? Uh, getting a network uh, network checker like a Fluke. Uh, and I, I, there's, there's a couple different devices that you can bring in. Uh, that you would uh, then test. You can test the ports. You can test the uh, connection to the server. You can test the connection outside and a lot more. I would bring another router in and because most of the time when we uh, go into an office to do live streaming, we're using our own router that's going into their network and then going out. So I, I make sure that you are not going to get stopped by their IT uh, as you're going because, of course, some IT shops have their networks uh, tied down and they notice instantly once a, an errant device shows up. So uh, working close with them is always a good thing to do, but you definitely test every single plug because we had, uh, we had one time where it was just, there were two plugs in the, uh, in the thing and the one wasn't working and we just, uh, we were able to, to diagnose it, switch it to the other one and uh, get our live stream going. Did you say the network tool is called a fluke as in um, how did you find the problem? Fluke, it was a fluke. Fluke, fluke, fluke is one <laughs> of them. Uh, there's there's other brands, but fluke is a major brand that uh, allows you to do a lot of testing. Yeah, Alex. Yeah, there's um there are uh, link runners are are something that you can plug in um and li and link scouts um are things and those I think link scout is made by fluke um but the but these are 
um, devices that will tell you everything that's going on. Now, if you're at a secure location, I've done this without thinking about it at a secure location, and people get real excited really quickly because it tells you every device that that you're going through <laughs> on the way out of the building. Um, and so, the uh, so be careful of of where you use those. Um, the other thing that we do is a trace route. So we, we want to see how many places that, that, that it hops and how long it takes to get through those. We hit one building one time where we had 100 hops before we got out of the building. You know, and so then we know that we're going to have to do something. So a trace route is a, is a really useful tool. It's a command line that you can do um, that's going to um, tell you what, what, what you're, give you a sense of what you're going through um, to get out of the building. Um, oftentimes we don't have a lot of the equipment that we are going to have at the event because our, it's coming in a rack and it's doing, you know, it's a bunch of different things there. But um, we do, um, you know, the other thing we note, we tend to note is what are the Ethernet, what are the ports that we're going to use if they're there? And um, and it depends on the size of the building or the size. Like if we're going to a conference center, we don't know what's going to happen there because people are going to bring something. If you're working in a really large company, usually there's weeks of meetings uh, working with their IT to open up certain things and we're not going to have those all until we get there. But at a smaller location, we want to know not, you know, we want to know where the router is. Where does the where does the WAN enter the building? So if we're going at a bar or a or a smaller location, we want to know where that is. What does it go through to get to us? And usually our first request is can we put a router between the WAN and their LAN? Um, so if they're big, then we're gonna have lots of meetings with their IT team. And they're going to tell us where how they're going to do it, and they're going to open the ports that we asked for, and and that's going to be all processed. If they're if they don't have an IT team, we usually are going to ask, can we put the router between the WAN and and their equipment? And then what we do is we slice off a VLAN to supply them with what they need, um, and then we keep the rest. <laughs> so we we don't want to um, work with their with their router their their WAN uh, connection if we don't have to. Um, so those are usually the things that we kind of take into account there. So, as it's no surprise to me, this is an excellent panel, and we're cutting through questions really quickly. So, if you have any additional questions, great time to put them in. Great day. We will have some capacity here. And as always, if you haven't voted and gone through the list, looked at the questions, and voted up or down the ones that you want us to spend the most time on, please do so, because that really helps us talk most about what you as a group want to talk about. That's our whole goal here. And uh, don't forget those second hour questions as well. We're really looking forward to talking to the team that was responsible for all our NAB coverage this year. All right, next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. Uh, and Douglas asks, with two wireless transmitters per presenter, wouldn't it be a lot harder to find enough clear air in the crowded event space? Mickey, what do you think? Yeah, it uh, really depends on how uh, crowded the RF environment is and how many RF channels you need. Um, as always with any um, any uh, use of uh, RF channels or wireless microphones, do your homework. Um, do your scans, scan the frequencies. Um, if you uh, if you need a lot of RF, uh, perhaps try to bring in systems that that are spread across uh, across the spectrum that is available for you to use. Or bring wideband uh, systems such as uh, Wisicom, um, and uh, as uh, Javier mentioned earlier, uh, coordinate your frequencies and calculate for inter intermodulation. Javier, do you have anything to add? Yeah, and if if you can, I don't think two two mics are gonna be that big of a toll. Uh, I think if you can find the space for like a seventy piece orchestra, you can find place for two microphones. 
And remember, you can the, the transmitter has to be near the mic because you have to connect it. But the receiver, you can put it whenever you want. So you can put it close to the stage. That way you don't have to run like a lot of antennas or anything. You can put it as close as you can and then run Dante or any other protocol and then take it out. So if you do those things well, like the what Mickey said, coordinate the frequencies, get everything right, uh, get a good wireless system, you can throw, not two, you can have, have 50 mics and work. So... A lot of wisdom there. Let's move on to the next question. Uh, next question is from Laura Thompson in Beaumont, Texas. And Laura asks, is there a replacement uh, micro USB cable for the Bigfoot microphone? Mickey, start us off. Oh, uh, yeah. I just took a look at the Bigfoot and it, it uses a uh, mini USB uh, cable. It has a mini USB uh, connector on it, not a micro. And you should be able to find those cables uh, fairly easily on places like Amazon. Or she. Sorry. Same advice. Uh, the Samsung Q2U has a mini as well to uh, USB-A. So any of those cables will do. Uh, Cableworks is a good company or Cable Matters on Amazon. So they would probably have a good replacement for you there. Excellent. Jeffrey, anything to add? Yeah, uh, just make sure that you're getting a, a cable that'll do data pass-through and not just power because there are some mini cables out there, of course, that'll do just power only. Alex, you had an add-on? All I was going to say is it is getting harder. I mean, Monoprice is also a good place to look for these. Um, it is getting harder to find the, the mini uh, USB cables. I may, I think I might have a whole box of them, though. So you should probably ping me. I'll throw one in the in USPS and send it to you. We had so many of these. And we actually, I think what brought USB-C forward pretty quickly was that the minis, when we moved from micro or mini to micro, the micros were so much less reliable than the minis that a lot of us were really frustrated about the, the, the micros. Like we were, they're, they're tiny and they're fiddly and, and they don't really give us a lot of extra things. And we really, I think it, it helped us push us to USB-C faster because it, the micros were kind of a disaster. Hmm. Mezzanine technology did not yeah. make you happy. No, <laughs> Let's move not. to the next question. Uh, next, next question is from John Foltz in Sellins Grove, Pennsylvania. Uh, Spin Launch wants to use a rotating arm to sling satellites to space using no rocket fuel. Their website is novel, too, because it's almost all video and few words. Predos thoughts? Uh, a modern trebuchet? <laughs> Here you go with space trebuchet. That sounds great. John Preto, is that what we're going to do for the next Office Hours launch? Modern trebuchet. That's funny. This this company's been around for a couple of years now. They're well funded, and they've got they've got funds from also from NASA to do tests. So uh, I I love the idea. I think it's great. Make it happen, <laughs> Alex. And John can John can let me know if this is the case. But I I feel like that when I look at that, I think that that while the G's are a lot to launch something, it seems like the G's would be even worse to sling something. Like the amount of G's that you'd have to generate seems like it would damage a lot of equipment. Like it, a trebuchet works because you're just throwing something at something else. But putting, I don't know if I want to put electro, electro, I built, I've built a couple of trebuchets. And I just don't know if I'd want to put a bunch of electronics into a trebuchet. That's, that's all I'm saying. It's, I know it's modern trebuchet, but still it's, it's a lot of slinging. Heard version two is a really big slingshot. So yeah, we'll yeah, see how that works out. <laughs> Let's go on to the next one. Uh, next question is from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, and he says, "What keeps apps? What's keeping apps like Siri, Alexa, and Google Home from rolling out AI?" Jeffrey Powers. Well, first of all, some of these actually do have AI. I mean, you're asking certain questions like, "Tell me a joke," and the AI bot will come in and uh, and go from there. For the most part, I don't want 
I don't want uh, a personal assistant, if I ask it a question, to come back with something that uh, is AI generated because I need to know facts if I'm asking a question like that. Uh, there's a lot of times where I'm using chat GPT and I say, hey, look up this product, maybe give me a quick uh, 250 word on this. And then they start looking at it and they start telling me the wrong product or the, the in, incorrect information on the product. I don't want that to come from a personal assistant just yet or ever for that matter. But uh, I think that that's the biggest hang up right now is we just want to know what's when we ask a question, what it is like an actor's name or what the temperature is and things like that. And then, of course, some of that's already AI generated. Javier. I also think it's a, a PR caution because uh, people are still getting used to having a device that's always listening to you, quote unquote, uh, and then having them in your home. is It was a, a big step for a lot of people. Uh, and now AI is this other technology that a lot of people are getting scared about. And it's like, it's going to take our job. It's going to change everything. So if you put those together into your home, a lot of people is going to like Skynet like go there like super quickly so i think that uh those, most companies are like treading very carefully in that environment because it can be a pr mess like super quickly john Prado, javier is right on the money that's exactly what happened and what's interesting yesterday google mentioned over and over we've been in this ai business for 10 years and google was trying to be very careful on the release of their ai specifically for the social repercussions therein and, and so that's what we're seeing now. They were forced to make these motions forward because of OpenAI and the relationship with Microsoft. And so now they're all rushing to get stuff out the door. But that's exactly the reason why. Yeah, and this looks like it's a societal change on a pretty large level with all these new tools. So it'll be interesting to see how it rolls out. We will be talking about it here on Office Hours, I'm sure, most of the days from now until we stop doing this, probably. Next question. Next question is from Mitchell Hill in Wilmington, Delaware. And Mitchell asks, if Avid, Final Cut, Premiere, and Resolve were placed in a death match, which one would survive? Ooh, death matches. Uh, Javier is going to start us off. Javier? I'm sure someone else is going to take the uh, better features, better workflow, whatever uh, approach. For me, it's very interesting because those are four companies like doing very different things. Like Avid is like a hardware slash software company that uh, that is like the standard, like for TV, like Pro Tools is for mixing, for audio mixing, etc. So they have like this big muscle supporting them. Final Cut. I mean, Apple can run Final Cut for 200 years without making one cent of it, and it wouldn't matter to them. They have so much money. And if they start closing, like, doing distribution and doing other things, Apple has, they, they can go, like, forever with that product. Uh, Blackmagic with, with Resolve, they even do a, a free a free tier that a lot of people use because they sell a lot of hardware, and it's all about the ecosystem. And they have, like, this super robust software that does a lot of things with their cameras and their switchers, and I think it's, like, a different thing. And Premiere, it's the software, and Adobe has more of a services and software. So, like, for us companies, I think there are four different approaches, and I don't think any of those four is gonna gonna go anywhere. I think it, it um, gets to different people. The pressing strategy is super different, and I think it's more like I don't think there's room for more, uh, even unless they are like very creative solutions, because those four are like there to stay. Nice analysis, Ronnie. Your thoughts? Well, uh, we use uh, three of them in our agency. We use. Uh, uh, 
mostly uh, DaVinci Resolve nowadays. And um, that's basically because of the workflow with multiple editors working at the same project uh, at the same time. Um, we are uh, still using Premiere for uh, the cool things where we also uh, have uh, After Effects. And me, myself, is using a lot of uh, Apple uh, editing. Uh, so I'm... Uh, tend to to use that as well so final cut has been uh, been really really quick for us and uh, da vinci is taking more and more uh, focus and as i heard rumor says that the norwegian broadcaster nrk are uh, so, uh, silently moving over to da vinci resolve as well interesting alex yeah i mean i think that avid is pretty embedded into the hollywood market i mean it's pretty much that's what everyone's using and i don't see that probably moving until the market disappears you know, which may <laughs> like you know but but it's probably another couple decades of of, of um steady work for avid no growth i don't think i don't think that anyone's using it much outside of that other than the schools that teach it um, we'd never see it in, in the wild outside of hollywood in new york um and so that it kind of lives in that in that environment um i think that final cut now you know, with the move to the iPad, and you're probably going to see a pretty aggressive move in social slash uh, education markets um, may really take up a lot of ground because it's a lot simpler than Resolve. You know, it's just easier to use than Resolve and much faster if you're putting together things for, again, for social media or for um, for those types of things. I, I don't, I know that Resolve is making some moves towards social media, but I think for a lot of creators, it'll be a little heavy um, to do that. Uh, the one that I don't really understand right now, like what their trajectory is, and I think that Adobe has a lot of things going for it, but After Effects, um, but I think Premiere is kind of the odd the odd app out um, in the sense that it doesn't, you know, Resolve is moving much faster, um, you know, and has got a lot more in it, and it's a lot less expensive. <laughs> and so it's it's moving, and, and we see the, the biggest growth right now is in Resolve. Um, across, you know, in professional areas. Um, so it'll be interesting. I don't think that there's, it's easy to pick one. If I think the, from a pure feature set, Resolve is probably the most feature heavy uh, app and they have the most developers, you know, most engineers working on it by a long shot. So so I think that um, it has it has an advantage in that area. I think that we're probably going to see some very aggressive moves by Blackmagic when it comes to Resolve and AI. Um, so I, I would I would be surprised if we don't see a lot of, of a lot of that. Cause it's the kind of thing that I think that Grant would be excited about. So I think that we're going to probably see um, some some really interesting things coming very soon. Okay, let's move on to the next question. Next question is from Brody Hefner in New York City, and uh, Brody asks: This new automated transcription service, Rough Cut Video Editor, aimed at YouTubers, has an odd pricing model: five dollars per video. But is this a glimpse of the future of AI-enhanced production assistance? Gling.ai. Uh, John, start us off. Yeah, Jeffrey found this one, for, and we played around with it a little bit. Um, I think $5 per video is ridiculous. You're going to see these features end up in all the other all the other um, leaders in, in this business. So I, a lot of these little guys that are creating these, these tools will, will all go away. And Jeffrey, I see the note here that you have something that you can set off and show it off, this Gling thing. Yeah, so basically I, I downloaded it and installed it and played around with it. Uh, this is a uh, this is a video that I've been working on. I, I actually put together yesterday where I'm showing a pressure washer that I'm going to be reviewing in my show. It, it does a decent job. Uh, you can easily cut out, like for instance, at the beginning here, I, I basically, this is my countdown right here, so I can just cut this whole thing out 
easy like that. And, and then uh, I can show all my cuts. So if I want to bring something back in and, uh, and then of course, export that to whatever, whatever uh, software I'm, I'm going to use for that. So it does a great job with that. It does put software onto the computer. It's not doing anything in the cloud. So, and of course you can do it on a Mac, you can do it on PC, uh, $5. So basically you're, you're getting $5 for an add-on plugin for uh, doing this. And as John said, th this is stuff that, uh, that Premiere, that uh, DaVinci and Final Cut are all working to get put into their, uh, in their software already, unless this company has something that they have a patent on, and then they can end up selling to one of these or licensing to these, uh, to these companies then yeah, it'll probably go away really quick. Is this like pay-per-use? Well, not actually pay-per-use, but pay-per-output? Is that why they charge you? Is each video yeah. output, it was, wow, that's an interesting price. So you can, I, haven't I, that before. The, I haven't done more than one, but I have a feeling you could actually edit all day your all your videos. But if you tried to export it to Adobe or to Final Cut, it'll then say, hey, you know, we're going to charge you for that. Interesting. Alex? Yeah, I think that this is the, the primary uh, competitor here is the script, which we, who we had on a couple of weeks ago as far as um, doing a lot of the edits. A lot of the edits are very similar to that. The script is a little bit more expensive up front, but obviously less expensive as you get going. Um, so I think that, but I, I do think that many of the features will end up in the big editing apps. So we've already seen uh, Resolve and Premiere really take a, um, you know, push that forward pretty quickly. Um, but I do think that there is a market for people just being able to just hack something out you know they did a recording they did something they're not they don't want to learn final cut or resolve or logic or something else they just want to learn they just want to you know clip it out i think the real challenge for for that will be you know when someone doesn't have that technical skill are they doing anything around it that makes it technically listenable or viewable and i think that's the hard part the, the inflation rate on content right now is uh, pretty intense. You know, I would call it nearly hyperinflation, which means that the value of the content itself is dropping like a rock because a lot of these tools are, are out there and people are just pumping out massive amounts of content that are reasonably good. And I think the real challenge is, is are, are people going to keep buying it, you know, or, or have time to watch it? <laughs> you know, so, so it's a, we're kind of in a hyperinflation uh, moment. And I think these are, you know, accelerating that. So it's, it's, which is fine. It just means we have to keep, as, as content creators, we have to keep thinking about where we fit into that model. John or Alex or anybody else who knows, because I don't, it is the neural engine that they keep talking about in Apple. Are there equivalent things on the other platforms that can help them, I guess, integrate AI kinds of operations in their things? Or do they do them on the general processors? And is there any difference to that? GP, GPUs, any... they're done on NVIDIA cards. Yeah. G so yeah, they NVIDIA don't have a separate... Have massive, they have, they have like $30,000, $40,000 NVIDIA cards that really are, this is all they're designed to do. So there, there's definitely, uh, but but in a general PC, they don't have this. Uh, most of them don't have the same machine learning or neural um, engines that that the M1 have. But NVIDIA provides the the real hardware, and that's why a lot of this makes more sense in the cloud, is because there's they have these you know they're spending these they're getting these huge NVIDIA cards that are supporting all of those things in the cloud that an individual can't afford. Ah, okay. So if you're using that kind of cloud workflow, cloud yeah, you go to Chat workflow, GPT, you're talking to an NVIDIA card. There you go. <laughs> you know, so, that, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That really helps me understand the, the architecture of this. Let's go to the next question. Our next question is from Douglas Carmichael. And Douglas asks, 
Um, Sony has launched a camera um, uh, with a with retinal projection technology to enable visually impaired people to take quality pictures. Uh, would this be a game changer for them in our industry? Harshid's going to weigh in on this. Harshid? Yes, uh, this will be a game changer uh, in a couple different ways. This is basically a monocular that is digitized. The product that is in question is called the Sony HX99 RNV kit. Um, they have uh, kind of uh, paid the exporting fee, if you may, uh, for the cost. So the cost has become lower for the visually impaired. And uh, due to that, um, the device is basically supposed to work as it projects whatever image it sees as a laser image onto your retina. So it gives you be better imagery. So for those that have macular degeneration at a lower, um, not a not a high stage in it, a high phase or stage in it, they could probably utilize something like this. Uh, Sony is also working on screen readers. So to add a screen reader onto a camera to, let's say, get autofocus and get all your shots in in that specific uh, numeric value and then get it ready and then autofocus is already doing its thing and you just snap a shot, it's going to change that perspective and for those that have some vision or perhaps just want to use something like a zoom in optical uh, thing to look at a screen from far away this would be a good tool so it's not only for the blind and visually impaired this could be for anyone and uh, I hear that San Diego Sony uh, the shop over there is uh, where you could find some of these devices to test them out so if you're in that area go check it out. Oh, holy heck, that's like two blocks from me, the big Sony Tower here in uh, in San Diego. So that's cool. Uh, thank you for bringing that to my attention. By the way, uh, if you haven't got a question in there and you have one that you've been uh, percolating on, this is a perfect day to do it. We have about another 20 minutes to go, and we've got some room in the queue. Also, remember, please uh, take the questions that are there, and if you have a moment, look at and vote them up and give us the idea of what you want to talk about more. I'm looking forward to the top of the hour when we're going to transition everything into talking about our NAB coverage. But for right now, we've got some capacity, so fill it if you'd like. Let's go on to the next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. Uh, and Douglas asks, one of the drivers for drop kits, according to a production uh, company's marketing, is often subpar internet connections in U.S. homes. The U.S. successfully deployed royal, rural uh, electrification in the 1930s. What would, will it take to deploy FTTP um, the same way? Jeffrey Powers, start us off. Well, in the 1930s, the landscape was a lot different than it is nowadays because, you know, you had uh, very concentrated cities, but then a lot of rural areas. Uh, and for the fiber, uh, for fiber to come out, and especially something that gives you great upload and download speed, is actually not too far away. In fact, uh, like, for instance, in my neighborhood, they started putting in fiber last year that would have started last year if it wasn't for the city causing uh, a uproar on uh, on getting all the permits and everything like that to do that. So uh, they're finishing it up, and I'm hoping within the next two weeks that I'm going to have a fiber connection. I have two internet connections coming in here because I need that failover if uh, if anything happens to the first one because a lot of people a lot of times fiber does get cut. That's the main problem with a lot of outages. Is somebody digs into the ground and, and cuts the fiber. So I, I want to be able to have that uh, with that. But I, I think within the next five years, 
All the major cities will have fiber. Getting out to rural, if it depends on where you are. And if you are really out there, you're probably going to have to dig into your pocketbook to get a fiber line uh, sent out to you. Alex? It's, it's, I'm not going to get into politics, but it's polit- political. <laughs> the reason that the reason that, that we don't have that we haven't done what's necessary to make that happen uh, is because the telecommunications companies give uh, our representatives an enormous amount of money to make sure that they don't they don't ask for this. Um, you know, they want to make money, <laughs> like you know, and and uh, uh, we've done it with we did it with plumbing, with electricity, with telephones. We could do you know we could roll glass to the house um, and make it a utility, which is what at this point. It would make more of a difference in the rural areas, especially, but smaller towns and everything else um, than almost anything else that they could do um, for, you know, building up, you know, giving people new places to live. Like a lot of times people, especially post-COVID, there's a lot of people that would love to move out of the cities and go somewhere else and work remotely. And one of the number one limiting factors for that is their bandwidth. And um, if they, if, you know, so I, I think municipalities should be really pushing for all of this stuff. But I think that it really has to come at some point from a national and state level of just we're just going to push this out to everyone um, because it would make a big difference. But the problem is, is that, again, there's not the political will to, to, do, it, to do what we did in the past. Um, the, 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 the companies affected were not as entrenched as they are now. And that's, that's what slows us down. Ike Potter. Oh, I'm sorry. The next question, please. Uh, next question is from Mike Potter in um, in Hanover, Germany. Uh, what do you think? Um, what do you think on Condor Blue's new camera handle that has a built-in compartment for the SanDisk NVMe SSD connecting via USB-C to a cam or to a recording cam monitor? Ninja Five Blackmagic Video Assist. So I looked this thing up, and it's pretty interesting. It's basically just the type of handle that you bolt onto a cage rig in order to uh, either carry your camera around between locations or sometimes to actually operate it in low angle mode. And then inside of that, they built a place to put an NVMB card for additional storage. It serves the same uh, same, uh, function that Alex and I and many others use by putting a little... uh, card holder or a small, um, oh, like the little sand disc holders on the top of our camera and running a cable to the output. So we have much more capacity than the simple little cards used in our cameras. Looks like an interesting form factor. It's out of the way. I will say I, I bolt a camera onto my rig maybe 20% or 30% of the time, often because I have some kind of monitor or something else on top of the cage, uh, like a viewfinder hookup or something, a viewfinder shade hookup for outdoor shooting. So I'd use it occasionally, but it looks interesting. Alex, your thoughts? I mean, overall, I, I have to remember, I, I keep remembering that Condor Blows really come up from nowhere. I mean, like for for me, they just came out of nowhere. They've probably been around for years and there's probably people in this panel, like, of course, we use them all the time. But uh, that, it was kind of a blind spot until a couple of years ago when I bought, I think, a, a HDMI cable. But they're building a lot of great rigs. I will say the only thing that a lot of us will have trouble with is that a lot of us have had trouble with SanDisk as a as a recording medium. Um, and so that has been, you know, when, you know, I have some that I've used and I've still had issues with them. So, so the, uh, so a, a, the, I don't know if they picked the right horse, um, in that, in that area, if it's really dedicated to that one. Um, but, but that, that'd be the only issue is that a lot of us have had failed records related to SanDisk and it's just the way that they set up the memory architecture. There you go. Let's move to the next question. Uh, next question is from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia. 
And Alex asks, he said, I was uh, watching a new video Doug Johnson put out on YouTube regarding criticism that eight inputs are not enough for even basic um, production setups. Even in my multi-cam podcast production, I'm finding eight Im inputs on my ATEM limiting. What do we think? Jeffrey Powers, what's your idea? Um, there's a lot of shows that I do that are just four inputs. Uh, actually, th there are some shows that are just two inputs. So uh, it's it, if you really want to grow and you really have, you want to do multi-angles, you got more than one presenter, uh, you want to show desktops and, and things like that, then yeah, eight, eight you start to... Uh, hit limits when you hit eight, and if you're if you're doing super source, then you're definitely probably going to hit some more limits from there. But for the average person, that's usually just got one or maybe two cameras. I think uh, we're, they're not going to hit any limits at all. Alex, yeah, there's plenty of shows that you can do with eight. <laughs> like, like you know, now I don't, I you know, I I will admit that I buy I tend to want to see 20 inputs for everything that I'm doing. So I, I said that, but I generally have a lot of inputs, a lot of IO because I want multiple key fills. I want multiple, uh, I want to be able to put a lot of cameras in, a lot of playbacks. I don't want to try to figure out how, how that looks, but I've, we've definitely sent out kits that have eight inputs that have been fine, even four inputs. Um, it just depends on the kind of show that you're doing. So I think that uh, Blackmagic is making it available for a certain kind of show. And if you're doing a classroom, a small round table, a um, you know, there's many things where six cameras and a key fill or six cameras, a playback and a, and a graphic in a, you know, lower third, what, you know, those types of things are five cameras, key fill, playback, all of those combinations would work with, with eight inputs. Um, the other thing to look at is whether you then start to, uh, one of the things we do to augment that is put a 20 by 20, uh, router in front of it. So now you have a bunch of inputs and four different parts of the show, you switch from one to the next. And because both of those are relatively inexpensive. I mean, the big thing with Blackmagic is you're paying so little for what you're getting as far as I.O. goes. Um, you can always add more to it um, to, to extend it if you need to. Rami, your thoughts? Well, uh, most of the kits we use uh, and send out for small conferences are normally four inputs. What we are uh, uh, hitting the limit on is uh, always outputs. So the small ATEMs uh, with HDMI is just uh, one output and it's a limit. Um, for a little bit bigger conferences uh, and uh, kind of more normal productions. We have at least three cameras and uh, probably two or maybe three PC inputs. So eight is enough uh, for us in most circumstances. And Brian Chant. Yeah, and also consider PDZ cameras that can give you different angles, but with the same input as well. So it's like having multiple cameras. There you go. All right. Hopefully, Alexander, that gave you some insights into some uh, ways to think about it. Let's move on to the next question. Next question is from Paul Wallace in uh, Austin, Texas. And Paul asks, can you demo and discuss talkback on the Android PC versus voiceover um, on iOS uh, Apple? Alex. You know, I think that that's probably an after-hours kind of discussion. Demoing something <laughs> that, that gets posted during this show is probably not something we can get to. Okay, fair enough. Let's move on to the next question. Uh, next question is from Mitchell Hill, and uh, Mitchell asks, uh, from Del Wilmington, Delaware, Mitchell asks, I agree with Bill's comment on Wednesday's show that AI can't fully exploit a text script into a properly formatted final edit. Uh, select takes and visual cues are too complicated for today's technology. What do you think? Javier is going to start us off. Javier? Uh, I agree completely with you, Bill. I, I, I'm think I'm sure that uh, we're eventually gonna get there. The the, the last part, the right now, where it's not there. Uh, I, I think it's the, the the key piece of information. 
Uh, there are things that are easy for uh, or easier for computers to recognize, like poor focus or uh, if, if it's too shaky, like those kind of stuff, I think are gonna solve themselves like pretty quickly. And the other part is all this AI, remember it is, uh, it is getting trained. It's getting, so it has to learn from you. So if you can like mark up your, like your script with uh, here, you could insert either B-roll or this other, like you have to maybe format different your scripts like not only like the text but maybe your inputs like here i would use like this kind of shot or this kind of shot and then after i'm just playing the devil's advocate here but then if the if the final edit tells you like what kind of job did i do uh, did i like my b-roll selection you don't like my real selection am i cutting too fast am i cutting too slow like it's like having an intern that's gonna learn from you so uh, i think that watching you edit will make it easier for then you can tell it like have this like um sort of i prefer this kind of shot and if it doesn't work get this kind of shot and if it doesn't work get this kind of shot and after a while i think you can train it to edit like you uh, so i think that's good because like having like an assistant more than having it do the work for you so i think that's where i see it going interesting alex I don't think it replaces the top 20%, maybe the top 10% of, of editors, but there's a lot of folks that don't do, cut a very good show. <laughs> Let me, I mean, I'm on the tail end of that a lot. Um, and, and so we just have to remember that when we talk about, you know, like there's a lot of people here with a lot of experience and say, well, they're not going to replace me. And that may be the case. And, and that's, you know, it's most likely. But there's a lot of folks that are at average or below average in their ability to, you know, put this together, especially with the kind of content that, education and, and uh, corporate and many other places, there's fo folks that this isn't their full-time job. I think in that case, in one to two years, you're going to be able to dump a bunch of stuff into a system and it will push out something that's probably better than what you have, the people that you have on staff. And that's the danger is that they, they you know, they, they, it's what you can afford to do, you know, and, and, and so I think that there are many, again, many editors that are going to do um, just fine. You know, this isn't going to affect at all because they're good at what they do, you know, and they, and they, um, are very good at what they do. But I think that, um, a lot of, again, b below average and average editors need to up their skill. And I think that for us, we have to be very, um, we have to be very conscious of how important what we're doing here in office hours is in the sense that we have to keep growing all the time. It's a lifetime thing now. You know, it is not something that you get good at something and just do it. You have to keep, you have to keep, we have to keep learning faster than the machine. <laughs> so and that's going to take all of us together to do that. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting when you, when I read this, I thought to myself, I, I don't know why I flash back to getting instructions on household purchases, like maybe a, a shed that I was building. And remember those terrible translations that we used to face where you just, you'd almost laugh because the English was fractured and it wasn't done very well. I don't see much of that anymore. Now the industry of instructions for offshore products has gotten so good at this that you usually open an instruction booklet even for a modestly priced thing and you found seven languages and they all sound like they're written well and you can follow it really easily. I consider most of this AI translation stuff like back in that era when I used to get those terrible instructions and it's going to get better. We know that. I used to say here famously 50% getting to 50% quality is easier, is still easy and it's never been easier than it is today. And it's harder and harder to push up. I'm constantly revising that and I'm agreeing with Alex that it's, you know, moving towards 70% is pretty easy with the automation, but then the top end is still pushed. It's, it's really hard to get there. And I think that's going to always be that way. 
There'll be more capabilities at the lower end, cheaper and more available. But that top really does require, I've got 10 ways I can cut this sequence together. It's not what is the most efficient or what is the shortest. It's it's what is the most satisfying. And those kind of skills are always going to be, I think, in high demand. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, and to get back to what you're talking about there, I mean, there's going to be a point where you take about six cameras and you put together something that you built, you know, that you bought on Amazon. And the thing is just going to analyze the video and then build a description and then do 3D animations of what that looks like. And it's, it's going to do all that for you uh, relatively quickly. And so those are the kind of things that I think are going to, are going to happen. And um, I still feel like there's so much room to grow um, when I get devices, things that I have to put together um, of, you know, there's a handful of places now that you roll over a QR code and it immediately plays you a video on how to, how to do this. Um, and that's kind of where I think a lot of things go. But I, what I will say is that there's so much content. When you look at just just the how to build stuff and how to put things together, there is so much content in the world that hasn't been produced that's needed. You know, like how to do things, how to move forward. Uh, we're still learning at a snail's pace because the content is just too expensive to produce that content. As we work with AI, not have AI take over, but work with AI to um, magnify a creator's um, vision, uh, so much more knowledge is going to come out into the world and we're going to learn faster. You're just going to learn how to do things faster because it's going to be more efficient to do it. Um, but you will have to learn and you will have to work all the time to stay ahead. And so I'm going to send out a warning. I, when I asked for more questions, you guys responded, uh, men and women and people just of all types, have we, you filled up the queue. And I don't think we're going to be able to get everything before the top of the hour. So thank you. Don't forget that if we don't get to your question, it'll be sent back. You can hold on to it and please bring it up tomorrow. We've got another show every day. So don't let your questions go to waste once you've formulated them. But for right now, let's go to the next question. Uh, next question is from um, Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. And Paul asks, Elementor. Uh, just announced that they've integrated AI natively into their WordPress editor to instantly generate high-quality content and code. Is this the only website AI creator so far? John Preto. Oh, boy, don't get me started with Elementor. It's uh, one of the first WYSIWYGs that started the subscription model for, for WordPress editing. It drives me crazy. I hate it. And this is a totally a gimmick. This is like what Chris has on his screen that says, now with AI, that's what this is. So you, uh, I, uh, first of all, it's about 10 lines of code to integrate chat GPT into any of your applications. The problem is GPT-4, the model GPT-4 is super expensive. And most of the integrations that you're seeing and stuff like this, I guarantee you is 3.5 and not 4.0. So you're not getting the latest, greatest stuff. Use all the tools, right? Built into the $20 version of, of OpenAI copy that into your into your WordPress site and then use Midjourney for your graphics. That's the best way to go. Ronnie, how sorry? Well, quick answer is no. Uh, there are even several AI integrations for uh, Elementor and uh, a host of other uh, is available as well from both the WordPress uh, repository, but also for other CMSs. Uh, but I totally agree with, uh, with uh, Mr. Preto. The prices here is the big question. How is this going to be priced and for whom? We are using this in our digital agency, but uh, it's not good enough yet. 
interesting. So we are almost at the top of the hour now. We're going to turn our attention over to our discussion no, we, of we, we, one, we can do one more. I mean, we're, okay, we're well, let's do one more question then. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, uh, next question is from Alexander Knight uh, in Vancouver, British Columbia. Is it possible to integrate an ATEM 2ME constellation into a setup with an ATEM Mini Extreme ISO switcher? So not so. Not sure if that's the right way to go, or just to replace the extreme altogether. Can the extreme be programmed to control the constellation? Mickey, help us out. I think. Uh, well, if you're talking about, like, say, cascading one switcher's output to uh, another switcher's inputs, uh, I think unless you have a very specific uh, um, use case that you've decided upon early on on what goes into where. Uh, you may find yourself in a bind because um, you would say, for example, if you have multiple inputs on switcher number one that is being sent to switcher number two, and you want to build a super source of those inputs on switcher number two, you'd, you'd um, you you would have a hard time with that. You'd have to unplug or reroute or repatch things. Um, if you're talking about strictly about controlling, you, you can build um, ways to. Uh, control the uh, the two me uh, from the from the mini uh, via say companion with triggers or mix effect with um, with Isadora. Uh, though I would recommend that you lean more towards getting a dedicated controller like something from Scarhoy, Xkeys, or even a Stream Deck. Nice. Okay. Boy, I've been so excited for this to come back again. All of you know that we did some significant coverage at NAB this year. And um, I know that those of you who watched it, I, I just as a viewer think, wow, they did a really good job. They did a lot of, you know, we were able to agilely move out to the field, have people go to booths, bring a kind of a visit the booth experience to you live. But I don't think everybody who watched the show understands exactly how big, technically proficient and flat out amazing. The pyramid of people and technology behind this effort really was. It was an amazing thing to get a to get the privilege to kind of just watch happen in real time. And for everybody you saw on the screen doing something from the show floor or on the panel or wherever, there were a lot of people working very hard in the back to make this all happen. And under the kind of live deadline pressure that a live show brings where you can't really make mistakes because everybody is expecting the next piece to show up just like we watch television and yet in the background there may be a thousand things going on that people have to fix in real time this crew did an amazing job of that and we're very lucky to have many of them here with us today including the person who produced all of this for us brian shand and so i'm gonna toss it to brian for a minute then alex is going to talk a little bit about his plan for the whole thing but brian tell us how you approach this whole thing Look, uh, I think I was just a, a manager of logistics and, and someone who was part of a great team. And I think really it was a team effort. And to be able to have another office hours production where we can all come together, especially offering people who might not be working on the daily show and giving them an opportunity was just fantastic. And look, I mean, we had really um, some pretty good goals where we wanted to, you know, go from the show floor in HDR 5.1. And I know we'll be talking about that a little bit later, but also to have two live panels over sort of two days, um, the after hours and also shorts and and the VODs. It was a, like we were aiming pretty high. And I think um, what these 
productions do is they give us an opportunity to to really go for it. We we don't have the same pressure as a um, a paid production, um, and that we can really just try and see what we can accomplish with with a great volunteer group as well. Alex, you conceived all of this. Tell us what your thinking was originally. Well, I, I think that mostly, we, I, I don't know if I conceived it, but we're following the path that uh, uh, other people conceived last year. So watching what people were doing, going, hey, we should really do more of this. Um, and I, so I think that, um, you know, I think as we got to this year, we had so many people coming in, we really wanted to throw a lot of stuff at the wall. Like, let's just see what what works, what doesn't work. Um, you know, I think that we found that, you know, VOD is with the limited bandwidth that we had, even with um, help, uh, from Keenan, uh, the limited bandwidth of big files was just hard to move around. So I think that, you know, our cloud idea there, we were like, well, we're going to have to have like gigabit connections if we're going to actually do that kind of, um, that kind of process. So, um, so that was, that was something that we learned, uh, or we'll do it more production on site or, or, you know, those types of things to, to make that actually happen. We did find that the live stuff worked pretty well, <laughs> so so we did, um, and we had some one of the, some of the other things that we did. We probably won't talk about quite as much today, but um, you know our after hours stuff I thought was a big success. So people being able to sit in after hours and float along. It was the very first try of it, where people are able to take. And I think that you know that may become a big part of what we do are, is the after hours coverage where we have people with smaller rigs that are bouncing around and and covering things and just showing people what's going on and being able to answer questions. That said, it was really great to have some great setups that we had. Um, and Nikki's going to kind of walk through some of these in a second. But but one of the things is we had, uh, you know, we had great support from LiveView. Um, so um, LiveView uh, lent us a, an LU800. Uh, Jeff Keithley, um, uh, 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 1F Jeff, uh, also lent us another LiveView. So we had two live views uh, that we were able to backhaul um, back to um, back to San Rafael. Electrosonic uh, gave us a, a ton of wireless. <laughs> so we had a bunch of uh, mic plugs and so on and so forth. That And, and that really helped sure things up. Um, I guess it's the wrong word for <laughs> what I'm talking about, electrosonic. But but anyway, but uh, but it helped. You know, the big thing is, is that, you know, by having those live views there, by having the, the electrosonics um, that were there, it really solved the key pieces of starting to really do coverage from the floor. Um, because the because a lot of times, you know, we were trying to put things together and people are stomping on your wireless or it's not working all the time and uh, or the or the backhaul is, is it can be, you know, here and there. And those things just those two things, which we knew we kind of focused on really helped solve a lot of the challenges that we had um, in the previous ones with things not quite, you know, tying together. And Electrosonic also supported us and LiveView in, at IBC. So we knew that those things helped make things a lot better. And being able to do, use them here, um, you know, I think it took it to another level. But what I think we ought to do is probably throw this to Mickey and have him just walk through the pipeline because that's going to generate a bunch of questions. So this, the reason that we're talking about this and the reason that we want to we always want to, after these events, is try to talk about how we did things. And we're doing more and more projects as a group. And I think that's a great place. This is because we're not getting paid for it, because we don't have a lot of NDAs. We can share how we do it. <laughs> we can talk about how we do it. Um, and so we want to make sure that we're re-injecting that knowledge back into the group so that our the next event gets better than the last one. So um, I think what we'll do is, if, so if you see quest things as, as Mickey's walking through these, and uh, and as we talk about other things here, make sure to throw those questions up. This is your chance to to learn a lot from what we um, we worked our way through. So, Mickey, go ahead and take it over. Take over. Cool. Um, I will cut over to this, and uh, 
uh, as I mentioned earlier, please uh, feel free to stop for questions or let me know if I'm going too slow, too fast. So uh, this is our pipeline for uh, NAB 2023 going from uh, all the way from the field going to uh, YouTube. So we start off, uh, we had uh, two field teams, field team one and field team three. Field team two did not happen because of reasons. Uh, we start with uh, we start with the mics. Each team had uh, two Shure SM58s each. Each of these were being fed into Electrosonics uh, HMA tran plug-on transmitters, and they were being received on a pair of uh, Electrosonics LR receivers, two for each uh, field team. Uh, the, the receivers were being fed to two di different devices for each field team. Field Team 1 had a Sound Devices Mix Pre 6 2, and Field Team 3 uh, had the Sony XLR H1, which fed their Sony cameras. And that was being fed to, for Field Team 1, a Blackmagic Design Pocket Cinema Camera 6K. Field Team 3, on the other hand, had two different cameras for each day. Day 1 was a Sony A7S 3 and Day 2 was a Sony FX30. Uh, that was being fed into a, an HMI to SDI converter and then fed into the LU800 uh, encoders. These encoders then uh, transmitted over the public internet to a LiveView LU4000 server, and the signal was being sent to an AJA FSHDR. In this and, case, it's and, F and FSHDR that, number five. And, and one thing I want to kind of go back to with the with the live view is one of the reasons that we really prioritized the live view, the LU800, was specifically because for two reasons. Uh, one is is that uh, we were able to do 10 bit, so that meant that we could do the HDR that we wanted to do um, to, for the transmission out. And the second uh, feature was is that we could either do four 1080p streams or one 4K stream. Now we didn't do as much 4K as we had planned uh, for a variety of reasons on this one, but being able to, we could grab multiple streams. We're going to experiment with both of those as we move forward um, a little bit more. But that was those are the two big features that we use. We, we had some questions about, like, why can't we just use an LU600 or a 300, or why don't we use something else? And it was because we were able to very seamlessly um, make those changes that, that we decided to go ahead. I mean, that's, what we, that's why we requested um, the LU800 for that, for that process. Go you ahead. Want to continue, Mickey, or are you? Yeah, yeah sure. So, yeah, this is the LU800 that the Alex was uh, speaking of. So that uh, fed into uh, an LU4000 and then into FS, an FSHDR, in this case, FSHDR number five. Uh, the signal was then sent into the ATEM uh, Constellation 8K, which is where uh, office hours is cut, along with the panelist inputs from the Zoom ISO machines. Uh, now for audio, let's go back to FSHDR number five. And then um, in the FSHDR five, the audio was being de-embedded and sent out via MADI into an RME Digiface Dante. It was then sent via the Dante Network 2 to a Behringer X32 rack, which is where the program was mixed along with the uh, panelist inputs from the Zoom ISO machines. The final program mix was then sent via Dante to uh, an Audinate AVO adapter and sent to, to the Constellation 8K for embedding into the program. And the uh, final program feed was uh, sent to 
and this is the usual pipeline that we're using even right now, the, the feed from the Constellation 8K is being sent to a uh, Terranex AV where the UHD program is being downscaled to 1080p, then sent to a pair of Elemental Link, uh, Elemental Link HD encoders and sent by the public internet to Media Live and then from Media Live out to YouTube. So, um, do you guys want to uh, just keep to going? Yeah, absolutely. Keep on going. All right. So, uh, let's talk about. Uh, I received a lot of uh, a lot of questions about this. Uh, how how do the panelists hear the field, and how does the field hear the panelists, and and all the uh, IFB feeds that's going on? So, let's talk about the interpol foldback uh, pipeline. So, let's. Go back earlier in the chain to the X32 rack where the program is uh, being created. Uh, aside from the program mix, we are also generating uh, multiple mix minuses. We're creating a mix minus for the field for sorry, for the panelists on stage. Uh, the mix minus consists of all the sources, of course, uh, except their own microphones coming from the Zoom ISO inputs. We're also creating mix minuses for field team one, two, and three. Well, field team two did not happen. Um, but we were we had all those set up and ready to go. These mixes were being sent uh, via Dante to an Apple Mac Mini uh, that are that's running the Dante Virtual Sound Card and Unity Connect. Uh, Unity Connect was used to transmit the mix minuses over the public internet to another Mac Mini at the uh, Cloud Bedrock, which is a uh, um, this is the Unity Intercom server that. Jim Hankins uh, has so generously let us use for over a year now for office hours. And that is how um, uh, ev well, everyone on comms was assigned the specific mix minus that they should be listening to. And that's how the panelists and the field reporters could hear each other. Uh, there was also a request to get a pipeline uh, set up to be able to use a live use built in IFB system. So... In this uh, Unity Intercom server, we, we had to take the PLs, or the PL channels that talents are supposed to hear, and send that out of Unity Intercom into Unity Connect and back into the um, the Mac Mini that is at 3210 uh, at 0.90. These PL PLs were then sent to another Behringer X32 rack. We needed another uh, X32 because. The first one was out of inputs and outputs, um, unless I did a lot of rerouting um, in between the daily show and the NAB broadcast, which I wasn't really keen on doing at one in the morning. So um, the mix, uh, so I asked Alex if we could use another X32. He said yes. So I uh, used that instead. The, um, what was, uh, aside from those PL channels being sent to that X32, uh, we also create. We also got the mix minuses created on the first X32 rack, and also sent that to that said second X32 rack. Um, the mix minuses were being ducked down whenever a signal from the appropriate uh, comps PL channels uh, were present. Uh, so that that um, was creating foldback mixes that were being interrupted by comms, thus creating an interruptible foldback uh, feed. This, these feeds were then sent out via Dante to another Audinate uh, AVO adapter 
into a Focusrite Scarlet Toy 2, which was plugged, which was being sent all the way back to the LU4000 server, then back out to the internet, to the LU800s, to their USB, uh, sorry, to their IFB outputs. Uh, these outputs were not used during the broadcasts, but they were tested, they worked. And uh, if you plugged in uh, an IFB earpiece or a wireless IFB system, uh, you would be able to utilize those uh, those feeds. Now, um, going to the 5.1 surround and the HDR test uh, pipelines. Uh, so for the 5.1 and HDR test, only field team one was part of the test. So let's focus on just field team one. Let's move and uh, I'm gonna... step set a little yeah. context for this as we kind of talk through it is is that um you know one of the things that that we wanted to experiment with was how much does it you know how does it feel to see hdr and and listen to 5.1 does it feel more like you're there um and does it you know and, and no one's ever done it before so we were kind of like in we were in a you know mode of like let's figure this out let's see let's see if it if if the experience is any better and i think that Definitely the resounding, uh, you know, feedback from folks that had a system that were watching it, um, you know, in, in a system that could handle it was that it definitely was a much more in, immersive experience. You know, they, they could hear the, the audience, they could hear the, the, the area around them, um, you know, and really feel like they're there. Um, and, and Mickey will talk about the technology of it, but I think that we definitely want to keep on experimenting with this because we, we felt like it was a really successful, um, you know, it was, a, it was an idea that a lot of us have had of trying to push that envelope. And it also, we're trying to get to a point where we normalize the idea that we can do HDR and 5.1 or Atmos and Vision or whatever we want to do there. We want to uh, make it so that we just don't think about it. Like, yeah, of course you do that all the time. And, and, and not, we don't have to wait if a client comes to us by doing this and then also by showing all of you how to do it. And then for all of us to do it more together, we get to a point where if a client came to us, there's not like three weeks of us trying to figure out how to do it or three months of how to figure it out. We're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we just do that. <laughs> like, yeah, we can just turn that on. And, and this one was a little bit stressful because we were still figuring out, um, you know, how to make all the little bits and pieces work. And I think it and, uh, and we couldn't have done it without without Mickey's engineering, <laughs> especially in the 5.1. So uh, it was uh, it was it was really good. Anyway, go ahead and take it. Take it away, Mickey. Yeah, I just want to add as well, like in the sound world uh we talk about uh not not so much this something sound right but we often speak in terms of like this is feel right um because yeah. because if if you know it doesn't add to the experience and what's the point just because it's cool yeah um uh what do you call this uh and also in terms of engineering like i was i was at the uh uh no i it, without folks like JJ, uh, Kevin Hansen, uh, and Brian, like and this would be uh, this wouldn't exist. Well, and and, um, and I and I do want to outline one one thing that Nikki just pointed out with the, the whole team, the the team that showed up willing to work on this at NAB, and the team that was and, and the teams that were offsite willing to work on this at NAB, and the engineering that we had on site. Uh, and again, as as JJ mentioned, or as J Mickey mentioned, JJ and Kevin and Mickey and a lot of folks figuring these things out together. We as a group can do things that none, no one can do individually. That's the thing that, you know, like we are able to take on these experiments and learn how to do this as a group in a way that if we thought of it, if any one of us thought of it, it would take a long time for anybody else to, for any one of us to a point where it just doesn't happen, you know? And so it, a lot of things that we do here at Office Hours is, are things that 
happen because there's a bunch of smart folks that are willing to work together on figuring it out. Um, and so I just want to commend everybody that it, it, the five the one specifically was something that we needed a lot of help from Mickey to figure out. <laughs> but the general pipeline overall um, is something and just the work that it takes. It's not just the engineering. It's people on the ground willing to put the time in. We had an enormous number of people. You'll see some a couple of photos from the from the press area. But we had, you know, a huge group of people on offline, you know, offsite. Uh, Brian was working with all of them and Dave, Dave was working with them as well, as well as group, a group on site, all putting in incredible hours. Greg, Greg came in and just, <laughs> he came in to have a good time and we just, <laughs> poor Greg was just running everywhere. I think, uh, and, uh, and Ronnie and his son and, and, and a lot of folks, um, uh, Edwin and, and lots of, I can't even list everybody. And of course, you know, we had, we had a great time. I hadn't gotten to host with Javier before, so it was, it was, it was a really good time. So anyway, and, and Jeffrey was there and, and Philippe. And so all, everyone that was putting time in during that made it happen and allowed us to learn what we're learning now and allow us to just do it at all. So it's really, really amazing. Anyway, go ahead, Mickey. Alrighty. So going back to this, the 5.1 surround and HDR uh, pipeline, uh, so for the uh, for the five point one test and HER test, um, only field team one was part of that. So let's focus on field team one. Uh, let's go a little earlier in the chain. Uh, a Blackmagic design uh, audio to SDI embedder was placed uh, prior to the LU eight hundred. Uh, this facilitated embedding up to eight channels of audio into the SDI feed. Um, for the audio pipeline, let's go back to the Mix Pre 6, this was removed from the chain. And the SM58s and the Electrosonics Wireless, along with the Sennheiser Ambio microphone, uh, which uh, uh, is an Ambisonics microphone, uh, first order Ambisonics for so four channels, um, that and the uh, Electrosonics Wireless were fed into a Sound Devices Scorpio uh, mixer and recorder. All six microphone feeds were then fed via AES into um into the audio and better and, and i just want to say yeah. the, the little bit there's a couple two things that i just want to say about that as as mickey's working through that is number one is that um that the reason that we one of the reasons that we were looking at the ambisonic and mix mixing the ambisonic with um with 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 the mics is that the ambisonic allows us to get the entire environment around us um, whereas the mics can be run right down the center channel. And the advantage of that is that we can attenuate the two. By having mics with a lot of off-axis rejection like the SM58s connected to the electrosonics, our hosts can do whatever they want, and we can set them in the center channel so that you're always hearing that. But we can create an environment of uh, with, the, with, the fi with the surround, we can create this environment that you feel, but we can still attenuate it. We can say, oh, that's getting to be too much, too distracting, so we can bring it down or bring it up. So we had separate control by using these, this mic system. We had a separate control of what comes down the center channel and is very present. And one, one thing that we found in surround in general, not just in here, is that when you when you create, when you start to tickle the brain from different directions, it makes what comes down that center channel even more present. And so that's the game that we were playing is by having, we, we take the mics, it's not just taking an ambisonic mic and we're just talking and hoping it picks it up. By having two mics that um, were, again, these wireless mics that allowed us to just kind of walk around wherever we wanted, but knowing that we're going to stay in that center channel, but then being able to create that environment was really powerful. The other thing is that the, there was, 
you know, I just want to make sure we we pass on the learnings so we don't have to do it again. Um, the there's uh, the out of the I don't know, Mickey, if you talk too much about this, but out of the sen- out of the sound uh, the Scorpio, you you know you have AES out, and you have to set the AES out the two stereo channels. There's two. Um, uh, right and left, each will take two channels. AES goes two channels per XLR channel. So there's two channels of AES on um, uh, on left and two two on right. And then you need to use the Limo connector, which I'm having trouble finding. <laughs> By the way, Mickey will talk. I, I keep on ordering the wrong ten pin Limo for the for the for the thing. So, um, but we're going to build a new cable for this. But basically, the Limo connector is where you have to get the other two ch- the other four channels out. And so we needed to have, I had to find somebody with one because trying to order one, they were all back ordered. They're all, you know, what they are. And and so um, that Limo connector became a, a thing. And we ended up with this really long cable um, because I had to rent it from somebody, a, an audio sound designer. I just couldn't find them in stock to get them in the time that I needed as I, once I realized that they were there. The other thing that was funny was that the AES... I, it's not very well documented in the manual how to turn your Scorpio into an AES. And it was really funny because I was sitting there going, I can't figure this out. And I read, I, I was like, I'm not going to ask Mickey until I've read every manual. I've read everything and it, nothing made sense about where this was. And of course I get on the, I got on a call with Mickey and, and, and I get like, um, just go down to the lower right <laughs> you know, like and, and click this thing. But it, it was very much like knock on the side of the wall, knock on the front of the wall, and then turn the door handle kind of way to get in to get the AES out of the, out of the Scorpio, which I'm sure every, a lot of sound, um, uh, field recorders know, but it's not well documented. <laughs> so, so anyway, do you want to respond to that? Yeah. The, uh, there's a lot of uh, capability packed into the the field mixers in general, um, and with such a, uh, a having a user interface that has to fit in such a tiny screen, yeah. uh, it's it's it, it kind of, things have to be tucked away and and sub menus of sub menus. <laughs> well, that's sub-menus. what I called tucked. It was really tucked away. It was like and you, uh, had to, you had to know it was there. Anyway, the AES let us get out, get, get that. We were limited to 4K30 because that's what the Black Magic one does. Where we are looking at getting the AJA one for future. Uh, uh, uses because we want to um, be able to do 4K 60, but 4K 30 we were capable of doing, even though we didn't do 4K on this on this round here. Go ahead, Mickey, do you want to finish up yeah. that description? We've got uh, yeah. 10, no, we got yeah, yeah, 13 questions in the line. Understand. Okay, I understand. Yeah, okay. go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, we're close to the end. Though um, I I just wanted to mention it's uh, it's not a limo connector; it's a Rosie ten pin connector. Rosie. That's why. <laughs> Also, well, not not well documented. All right. Anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Uh, just to continue on. So we had our um, two channels of electrosonics wireless and also the four channels from uh, the Ambio microphone being fed into a uh, Scorpio, which pretty much acted as uh, our microphone preamps and also A to D conversion. Uh, all six uh, feeds were then fed via AES into the the um, audio embedder and sent out down the pipeline all the way down to the uh, to FSHDR6, another FSHDR. Uh, more on that later. For the audio, let's go back to uh, uh, FSHDR5. Uh, the audio on uh, via H- FSHDR5 were once again being fed via MADI into an RME Digiface Dante. Then sent by again via Dante. Sorry, it was coming from FSHR5 via Maddie, and then sent via Dante to uh, 
another Apple Mac Mini, which is running Dante Virtual Sound Card and Avid's uh, Pro Tools. Um, the Sennheiser Ambio microphone was being decoded into 5.1 in Pro Tools using the Harpex X plugin. And some basic EQ was done with the uh, uh, EQ37 band built into uh, Pro Tools. And this is where the full 5.1 program mix was created. The, uh, the program mix was then sent via Dante back to the RME Digiface Dante and sent via Maddie again to FSHR6 where it is embedded in with the video feed. The final program feed was then sent to an AWS Elemental Link UHD. Uh, this encoded encodes and transmits the uh, feed over the public inter- internet into AWS Media Live. In Media Live, though, something that's different from the regular um, uh, program that we do daily, in Media Live, the six channels of 5.1 was then encoded into EAC3, which is also known as Dolby Digital Plus. This is necessary because some um, YouTube uh, requires EAC3 encoded streams for surround sound. Media Live then transmits the final encoded stream to uh, YouTube. And uh, that is the uh, pipeline. And, and I will say that it, it is, uh, it's, it's really, I've done a lot of surround and, it, and the fact that we can do 5.1 and, and, and HDR in, just straight into YouTube without having to think about all the player, there's, there are a ton of problems um, in the world of the player, um, the, the deliver, you know, how it delivers to the devices. And while it's just getting started, um, the, YouTube's doing most of that work, <laughs> doing that work for us. And so it's really great that even though this looks like a pretty complicated pipeline to put this together, and we again, we want to show everyone as we keep on refining this pipeline over this year, showing everybody how it all gets, um, you know, how all gets wired together. Um, I think that it was, uh, uh, it's really, um, it makes it a lot easier not to have to deal with the player. Um, I'm going to show just a couple things, and then we'll jump into the questions. Um, just know, wanted to yeah, mention that uh, that this also makes for a pretty... Interesting, uh, lower Fenwick. <laughs> a faux Fenwick. <laughs> that, that, that's a very, very complex faux Fenwick. Yeah, that, 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 that's perfect. Um, here's some shots, just a handful of shots that we took um, from there. So here you can see, um, you know, the, the this is what really makes the, the live you work really well is the, is the fact that it's just a backpack and you just have everything kind of wired into it. Um, here you can see the, um, uh, if I go to the next, uh, see if I can get this to work. Uh, here's you. You can kind of see where we had, um, you know, we had that we had the. This is where we kind of sell, double backed, um, it, you know, and basically had. Uh, here are our electro. These are the little receivers um, that we were using for those mic plugs, and then then we had the in in this bag um, we had the um, the Scorpio, which then fed everything in um, to that to make that make that actually work there. Um, the uh, here you can see us trying to find the place that we needed to plug in the. Um, get the AES out uh, in the in the Scorpio as we were working through the wiring there. Um, you can see we tested this both low. This is the ambisonic. Um, that's the the Ambio mic. Um, this is the connection, um, and I think I have another one where it's high. This is the connection to it. So it's four outputs that are there for those those mics that go in raw. We didn't bother to process them at on site. We were able to just send them back in the multi track uh, from the live view back to San Rafael. Now this is the other experiment. I think this was Mickey. You can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think this was the the more successful version of this was to move that mic a lot further away to kind of grab things as opposed to having it when it was too low. Um, we were kind of, we had bodies blocking it and 
you know, it was getting too much from right where it's at. Um, so I think that, that that probably worked a little bit, a little bit more effectively. So um, anyway, let's go ahead and uh, let's jump into those questions. No, oh, that's me, isn't it? Um, uh, oh, Mickey, we're going to add, were you going to add something? No. Uh, yeah, in terms of the the height of the uh, of the ambisonics microphone, it really depends on what the goal at goal is. Um, if you're looking for like a general uh, ambience, like the, you know the roar of the room, or or um, or uh, just the bed, then I would say the higher the better, um, because you if the microphone is too low, then you risk the uh, risk the chance of possibly getting individual voices pinpointed uh across right. your your surround uh um plane as opposed to having it up above you can just capture a general atmosphere yeah absolutely uh first question is from tom ferguson in phoenix arizona and tom said i know we had great success with electrosonic wireless microphones office hours used at nab which models or frequencies did you use to avoid the nab rf challenges and would the new deity field wireless system be a contender in this environment mickey start us out so yeah i'd say like um electrosonics um their their development uh, on their uh, wireless, especially on their receivers, are tracking the very, very precise and tight tracking front end filters on their um, on their receivers are. Um, I I don't think, uh, at least in my experience, anything compares. Like say with the current generation of the A two two A two two receivers, um, I don't think any anything compares to it uh, in the market. Even like the the four eleven A that was released uh, fifteen years ago, um, not many, not many uh, other systems compared to the performance that uh, that receiver gives. Like to the point that, um, say, if I'm shooting on location, like I I'm not as surprised anymore. Even if say I hear transmission or I see, I see transmission on my receivers from hair and makeup that is maybe a block and a half away. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, the performance, there's a reason why they are the industry standard in film and TV and pretty challenging and, and used in very challenging environments. Um, I know like Andrew Jones and, the the, uh, uh, the rest of the guys at Deity, um, have done a lot to, to bring like good performance wireless to, uh, to a much lower uh, price point, but uh, for wireless, you really get what you pay for. And um, yes, you you pay three or four uh, US uh, three or four thousand US dollars for each channel. But um, if you are doing mission critical work, wherein failure is very expensive um, or unacceptable, um, you really want to go with the quality wireless. Rami. Well, um, being at NAB is uh, surely a nightmare and not intentionally using the word sure. Uh, but uh, as an as answer to the question, uh, the L-series uh, from Electrosonics are really good. They use a lot of batteries though. So watch the battery meter all the time and bring extra batteries in your pocket, uh, which we uh, had a, a situation about. Um, the other thing, the other the other question was, uh, how did we uh, tune it? Um, we used uh, the smart tune, 
which is actually actively scanning all the, the frequencies and finding an available one. That worked all the time, and we had no problem whatsoever using that. Just watch the batteries. Alex? Yeah, just to underline, I mean, when, when it needed to work, I mean, we were doing so many things that we're trying to get to, we're trying to get so many variables to work, as you can see from that layout. Uh, what we didn't want to have to think about were, was the, the wireless transmission and whether it was going to stick around or break up or do other things like that. And when you put an electrosonic system in, you're, you know that it's that part's going to go okay. Um, you know, at some point in the future, we want to test the, some of the sound devices stuff, um, you know, to, to see. But from all the stuff that we've actually used, uh, electrosonic has been the kind of high watermark for us. Next question. Uh, next question is uh, is from Jonas Dattel in uh, Stuttgart, Germany. Uh, what was the biggest challenge with 5.1 streaming? Mickey, start us off. Uh, I think, f f at least from my point of view, um, the biggest challenge, because 5.1 has been done for decades now. Um, the biggest challenge, I think, earlier on in the process, and uh, Alex was... Um, was uh, was heavily part of this is figuring out the proper encode uh, into AC3. Um, in terms of this specific project, the biggest challenge was getting time to test. Yeah, well, and and you know, part part of it was yeah, pulling everything together, um, and then all the pieces coming. You know, we were lent a lot of hardware, and all of it showed up right before the show. <laughs> so so we were just landing. Uh, we're going to be doing some more testing over the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, from a variety of locations because we're getting ready for. Uh, potentially covering Cinegear, and we want to make sure that we we take the lessons and figure those things out. But we're uh, kind of working through that right now. Jeffrey Powers. So for being for my two minutes of being the ambisonic manager on the crew, I would have to say it's pointing pointing the uh, pointing the microphone in the direction to make the five point one actually work. Uh, as people bodies move around, and Alex and 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 uh, and ah. Uh, can't think of his name. Sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, as as they were as they were walking around, that you know, if the ambisonic microphone was in a, in the wrong spot, wrong direction, then it kind of threw everybody off. If if Javier was on the left side and he was actually on the right side, things like that. But then there was just that small crew that has to work very tight knit to stay in the distances that they need to stay in. And so you've got uh, you've got one person on the camera, you got one person holding the mic, you got this cord that's uh, that's basically being a tail uh, and connecting both pieces. So you'd have to be able to move around in tight spots. When we went into the truck to take a look at the mocap stuff, uh, yeah, that was a little bit tough, but uh, we didn't spend too much time in there, so that was good. And then bringing everybody back out, so it's just basically managing everything as to where it needs to be so the 5.1 does not get broken up because one microphone's pointed in the wrong direction. Javier? I think one of the most important challenges uh, for, like, in, for an HDR and for the 5.1 was like, what should we do with it? I mean, when HDR, Alex and I were like, what should we show? Should we go that? Or should we go to, to, the, to the lights? Should we go to the screen? Should we go to the reflections? So that was the, in 5.1 was the same. We, we had like this from the moment we started, like for the next day, even the next day in Vegas, we were still discussing like, what should a 5.1 mix of this should look like or should sound like? Like uh, if the camera pans, should, the, should we like, 
drift or should we like try to walk in the straight path so we don't have moving audio or should we like all of that like creative decisions i think is that the next part the, the technical part when i got there it was like basically so the solution was made like i think it's a complex system but it was built well enough that when we have a hiccup we could uh, work around it but the creative part and uh, like like deciding what to do not if we could do it i think that's the the, the next step in making this like really into a production like found that very broadcast. fascinating javier ronnie your thoughts well, I think the the electronics and the, and the system uh, pre prepare uh, preparations was really good. Um, I think the biggest struggle would be to, and I just see this as a big problem. We'll probably try to, this at IBC as well. Is the big train of cables and equipment uh, coming through a really packed uh, show floor uh, and uh, preventing people from stopping you and asking, "What is this thing?" Interesting, Alex. I actually think the the big train is good for us. <laughs> so so we, we definitely make leave an impression. Uh, while we're talking about five one, Mickey, I think you have a Pro Tools session open. Do you want to show a little bit about what that looks like when we do the processing? Uh yeah. Give me a sec. All right, I'm going to be sharing screen here. Okay. So. All right, so here we have, uh, and um, just just so you guys know, this is a um, a uh, an ambassador. Sorry, um, this isn't the exact proto session that was used for the broadcast. This is a um, uh, a modified version of it with uh, with the recordings, but instead of just uh, being output to uh, being sent out to uh, to uh, 5.1. It's actually being sent out to uh, Atmos, and where's my render? So it's being sent out to an Atmos render. Then the Atmos render is taking that uh, Atmos mix and put sending that out via binaural. So I would recommend that uh, everyone, uh, people, the people watching, uh, listen on headphones or earphones so that you can get a better sense of uh, the panning and surround, and also the movement and height. Um, even though you're just listening on uh, on stereo, and actually, Bill is putting on his headphones right now, which I should do as well, so that I can hear it uh, properly. Cool. So, let me open this back up again. Over here, we have uh, uh, Javier's microphone, and then Alex's mic, and this is the four channels of raw Ambio uh, recording. So, just to show off uh, that the uh, you know the whole effect of uh, panning things around let me take um alex's mic and i'll show i'll show the atmos uh, preview here i'm going to solo alex's mic and then see? open up the uh open up the panner just to see um and so and one thing that we'll have to and wait I'm gonna hopefully mickey's on alex, comms are you on comms alex with around and uh, is anyone on comms in a circle because what we want to find out is is that is that microphone high enough? Maybe we'll even try making the microphone a little higher and see what we get. But we'll we'll see how that how that goes. So so here is we're standing in Central Hall, and uh, so then this is uh, I'll I'll keep Alex pretty cool, pretty well. down come, here. Come up this way a little and bit. I'm we'll gonna pan, bring him up in the, in terms of height. So up to the ceiling. It's, it's a it's a big place. So we're um 
So we're, we're really excited to see what this all, you know, we're going to go down here and look at a couple things. But uh, we're really excited. And here down. you can kind of see a lot of times I just go out here and I look. I'm always surprised that more people don't put I'm not these flags I'm not entirely sure how well that's uh, coming that's through uh, over I Zoom. Just, I look, I'm like, oh, I got to find but, it. Uh, I'm going to reset you know, so, Alex back so to that uh, center really where dialogue should be. Um, <laughs> it's about I'm that. I'm going to open up a Javier's mic as well. Yeah. yeah. Like, we've spent like two hours walking yeah. and you get like... So that's just the two the, handheld yeah, mics. No, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's... And, and you know, some of the best stuff is found in the... In the uh, like uh, in the back of the... the back, the little... The then little I'm going to unmute the ambassadors. There's more little booths than there used to be. When I used to come to this hall, it was all just massive booths, you know? And so it's really gotten a lot more... Democratic. I mean, we have the Sennheisers and the DJ. Bring up the Ambio a bit. Have like a lot of stuff, but there's a lot of little vendors. I will say, I think that I think Central Hall is kind of the cool one this time. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's go down and take a look at some stuff. And I think that you can hear a lot more of what. Uh, for for me, you can hear. You just feel a lot more like you're there. But we're still coming in clear through that center channel. So yeah, and uh, right now I'm just playing the uh, the Ambio out here. And during the uh, the show, uh, I use the Harpex plugin to do the decoding from uh, the Ambio A format to uh, out to 5.1. Well, now we're decoding it to uh, to Atmos. Um, but for today, I'm going to switch over to using the uh, Rode Soundfield uh, plugin, just because. Uh, and this was showed off by. Uh, oh, this was demoed by this plugin was demoed by Jeff Francis last week, I think. Uh, sim- I'm using this now simply because it's way more visual than the Harpex plugin. Um, I I went with the with Harpex for the show because uh, I wanted something that just that I know will is simple and will just work, especially because we did not have much, uh, time for testing. So. That's the Ambisonics plugin. Uh, sorry, Ambisonics microphone still playing out, and then I'm gonna move, go over to um, to a portion of the multi-track recording uh, that contains uh, uh, that has a wherein they were they had a PA system playing in the, in the background, and uh, I took a screenshot of the the video, and it was here behind them. Uh, is my cursor coming? Yeah, my cursor is coming out. Behind them is a uh, there was a, a stage with someone speaking out on um, a PA system. So if we go back to Pro Tools, uh, that is in this area of the um, of the recording. At some point, Edwin's going to look at us and go, "Battery, Aziz." Battery. All right, all right. So let's let's keep on. And no one probably knows that reference. That's a that's a True Lies reference. My favorite. So you can see, there's a lot of energy. There's a lot of energy let's, let's in the front left okay, of the, uh, so of the recording. You can see that with the, high, with the so, brighter colors um, in this uh This is a very loud booth. They're doing yes, a loud demo. So. so there's a lot of loudness behind us. So we're going to see what this picks up, how it works. And in the behind kind of them being uh, in yeah. the front left and, from uh, the microphone's perspective. Those photos. And we're going to hope then later some, down in the recording, I asked them to flip around and have the... Yeah, no have worries. the so, uh, the PA uh, system behind instead, and you would be able way. to see right now the, you would be able I'm to see more activity the on the Ambisonics mic so, in the rear. Right. So we're looking over at so Tilta now. Uh, and here's the area where there's more activity the, in the rear. So, so no. solo that. 
solo the ambisonics. And actually, let me also bring up the level of the surrounds so that it comes across to, to us more. So that's definitely an advantage with uh, with um, ambisonic uh, capture is that uh, since you're capturing a sphere of audio, uh, you would uh, be able to uh, in post or later down the line or even at the live mixing board, you can move things uh, around uh, however it works best for you for your uh, delivery. If, like, say, for example, if the uh, microphone is, isn't perfectly placed and front isn't front, top isn't perfectly at the top, you can move signals around. And uh, let me find a, a, a spot that would be a good uh, example for that. So over here, we had, um, we had the, the guys uh, speak directly into the Ambio mic. And just, a, just to refresh our memory, that would be in uh, in the uh, broadcast, this is when they had the mic in frame, and Alex was at the front left of the microphone, uh, Javier towards the rear, and they started speaking into the mic and moving around the the mic as they spoke. So let's go back into uh, into into Pro Tools and play that area back. Yeah. Alex is standing to the front left. And, and you probably haven't seen this in the shot before. So as we look at this. Um, this is a Sennheiser Ambio, um, and it's got four little mics in there, and then it's got the four outputs here. Now, it, it, it's not good by itself generally, but what we do is Alex is at the front left and convert there. It, and we'll talk more about that. I think I can move, I can move it ar left. around. I should be so in that the back, so anyone that has back speakers, don't get afraid. I'm behind Javier, you. Javier, who's actually okay, in the rear, cool. is now sounding like he's <laughs> in front be of all us. The way on the right. so and I'm going to go. And then hello. Hello, hello. Switch places. Harry Potter. Oh, no. <laughs> I've come for you. That's really creepy. It's a fun experiment. <laughs> so just going back to that though, Alex was uh, making a Chewbacca noise as he was rotating counterclockwise, and you can see that activity. It's <laughs> really creepy. not <laughs> It's a fun experiment. <laughs> and I think a, a much uh, more uh, more a much clearer example would be uh, I recorded the very quick uh, line check that Javier did uh, right like 15 minutes before the show went live, um, and uh, this would be uh, uh, even more pronounced in uh, in terms of location because he was speaking at very specific spots during that check. Okay, I'm standing Everybody in the back. Here I am at the right of the microphone perspective. Here I'm at the rear right of the microphone mic. Yes. I'm here at the left of the microphone. Okay, front left. Here I'm at front left of the microphone, at the same distance. So, uh, I don't know what else to show. Um, That's good. Know if, uh, That's good. Right, very we, cool. We got a bunch of yeah. We're we're uh, stacking up, and, and I wanted to make sure that we showed people that because it's really a lot. There's a lot going on there um, to make all of this work, and it's just the very beginning of of what we're working on. And um and so it's uh, but I it's a uh, I wanted to make sure we covered that before we before we moved on. So let's go ahead. To nice. The next question. 
Yeah. Uh, next question is from Tom Ferguson in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And Tom said, could you please give us more specifics about each NAB coverage kit? Ronnie, start us out. Well, we were a part of a field theme three and um, uh, having various talents uh, in front of us. So we had the A7S3 uh, with uh, two electrosonics uh, going in through the XLR interface. And uh, one of the most important features beside electrosonics uh, was the monopod, uh, which we uh, just got from uh, from one of the vendors in um, in the States, uh, which proved to be really, really flexible and uh, made us uh, move uh, very lightly between um, uh, the big crowds of people. So that was... Uh, one who made the, that? Is that a Surrey or is that one of the other brands? Yeah, that's, that's the Surrey, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, was uh, kind of launched just a few days before NAB. And uh, it's a really, really good piece of uh, hardware, very light and extremely flexible. And you can mount it... Uh, in very many different uh, uh, versions to uh, accommodate the needs. Nice. Uh, Brian. Yeah, I just want to say thank you to um, everyone who did donate equipment all their time as well, because um, it's really made this production uh, fantastic. So uh, Live View, Jeff Keithley, Electrosonics, Jim Hankins, and Keenan Disaster Group, and, and really just everyone who was able to contribute. Alex. Yeah, and all I was going to say is that I think that we did have tripods and monopods, and I will say that the monopods worked a lot better. <laughs> tripods, we probably won't won't use a tripod again in the future. Um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I've never used tripods or monopods until the last couple of years, and I found it really liberating. It I mean, when like you're moving, you when, you're, when you're moving and trying to get to one thing to after the next, I think it was it was a little bit it was a little less cumbersome. Absolutely. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Xander Snell in Miami, and and uh, Xander said asks. Uh, why did you use an Avio to return audio to the mixer when you have an RME Digiface Dante that can return 32 channels back to the ATEM? And Mickey. So yeah, that the uh, that pipeline was in place uh, way before uh, we had a uh, Digiface Dante in the pipeline. We, I think the Digiface Dante only uh, came in early January. Was it Alex? Yeah. yeah. Uh, while the analog pipeline was in place since uh, for a year, I think. Let's go to the next question. Uh, next question is from Jim Wilkins uh, in Marblehead, Massachusetts. With all the audio processing and Amb- Ambio decoding plugin, how did you adjust lip sync timing and where in the chain? Mickey, was that a problem? Uh, specifically for the uh, uh, 5.1 HDR test, the uh, sync was dialed in at the at FSHDR number six, where the embed was was going on for the regular uh, office hour show. Sync is dialed in at the X32. There you go. Next question. Uh, next question is from um, Greg uh, Greckmeyer. And uh, Greg asks, Peter and I spend a lot of time bringing AH along, off, I mean, a- after hours along, but my uh, exhibit coverage was rather random and not planned. Uh, what would be the goals for the after hours for future coverage? Alex, you want to address this? Yeah, one of the things that we're really thinking about as we move, as we look into the future is still having it be somewhat random um, and, uh, but, but have it be something, I, I don't want to, what we don't want to do, we want to get more, we want to kind of split the difference between what we did at NAB, which is we just kind of roamed around versus what we've done in the past, which is highly structured. And so I think that what we're looking at is if we look at a two-day event, um, the first day would be after hours and it's still a lot of people spreading out and just looking at a lot of things. 
the, 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 and then you have a more organized process in the second day where we're actually using the live views and interacting with it. But we use the, the after hours as a way to kind of show everything and have us talk about the things that we want to see on the show and more organization. So people are kind of, again, the producers are kind of part of that creation process. Jeffrey Powers. Yeah, and in doing this, uh, I've done after-hours stuff not only for this show but for other shows and like CES and, and Infocom last year. And uh, the one thing that I found that was very useful was if I get to a booth where I don't know everything about this booth, there might be somebody that's you know kind of got the down low on on what to look at and be able to kind of focus in that way for the regular show. Uh, but other than that, it's just way too. Uh, it's way too hectic to try and plot out a game plan, especially when you're doing something for after hours rather than doing something that is going to be in a live production or anything like that. Because then that way you can kind of plan with uh, people in the booth and uh, and instead of just walking up and, and shining a camera in front of, of people's faces. So uh, I think, uh, yeah, it's you just have to do what you can do and then uh, and get as much input from the uh from the people that are watching and hopefully the, to make the, the live show even better. Let's go to the next question. Our next question is from Javier Alfaro in Mexico City. And Javier asks, uh, is there going to be an edited version of the 5.1 feed? I really want to watch and listen it, listen to it. Alex, did, is that uh, We're possible? probably not going to make it public, but we will have, um, we'll, we'll cut some samples uh, out of it and uh, we'll put it somewhere in Discord uh, in, the, in the not too distant future. All right, next question. Next question is um, from uh, uh, Jack uh, <laughs> Rupel uh, in Breckenridge, California, in Breckenridge, Colorado. Ambisonic mic and processing solutions are very expensive. Uh, is there a way to use my own microphones and computer to achieve the same results? Mickey, what do you think? Uh, yeah, you can uh, sort of build uh, a more affordable solution with a double MS system. I think um, uh, Jeff Francis touched on. Uh, MS microphone technique, mid-side microphone technique uh, a week ago. Uh, a double MS is essentially would consist of three microphones, uh, two cardioids, one facing forward, another facing back, and uh, a, uh, a figure eight microphone uh, to capture the sides. And you can, from those three microphones, you can derive a a quad uh, um, output. And that would could you could also, I guess, in a sense, combine the left and right output to create your center. Uh, from that, or or actually just take the cardioid um, uh, the cardioid mid microphone and send that out directly to the center channel. Um, uh, that's a more affordable solution to be able to capture a, some sort of a surround field um, with just uh, three microphones. Next question. Next question is from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Much like any be used to have. Um, much like NAB used to have more dedicated halls, might there be a day when office hours is simultaneously dedicated streams from a large show, audio, video, IP, AI, VO, FO. And finally, when should we, quote unquote, flip the trade show? Alex, what's your thinking on this? I know you've articulated. I mean, eventually, yeah, the goal is eventually, if we were big enough, we would have uh, multiple channels. Uh, I, I think that I think it'll take some time before we, we really need to do separate tracks for all of those. It could be years before we get big enough to do to do that where we had, um, I'd rather, if I've got four days, I'd rather have a three-hour section on audio and a three-hour section on video and a three-hour section on something else to, so that 
what we don't want to do, what we want to avoid as much as we can is FOMO, you know, fear of missing out and having people, because we're so conversational based, we don't, it's not just coverage. It's people being able to be there and ask questions and be part of that conversation. So we'll try to keep a single path for as long as we possibly can. But when we start having just, we just can't get to it all. We're not there yet because we didn't broadcast from the time the, the show opened to the time it closed. Um, and so, uh, so because we didn't do that, we're still not at capacity and we're, we're still going to take us some time to, to get to that capacity. And then we can make it more efficient. Like one of the things we're talking about is you could have a live view with four Teradex and, uh, you know, the, the Rangers, and we could be jumping back in like popcorn in one, even in one venue and just jumping from one thing to the next. Um, and that's the stuff we haven't started to even do yet. So I think that there's a lot for us to go before we start breaking up into those. As far as flipping the, the trade show, I think showing videos about all the things that are coming out before the trade show and then going to take a look at them. I think we should do that as soon as we can. <laughs> Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles. And Gordon asks, um, could the audio feed go out analog from the X32 rack to the ATEM switcher, or does it have to first go through the Dante device? Mickey? Uh, yeah, it could uh, wire up, be wired up directly from the X32 into the Constellation. Uh, this, um, uh, similar to the question earlier, this... Uh, um, pipeline has been in place um, uh, prior to uh, it's it, it's a legacy setup, I guess you could call it, um, where when the this X32 rack was in a completely separate rack, so um, we had wired it via Dante for for ease. Next question. Next question is from. Um, Douglas Carmichael and Douglas asks, wouldn't Dante Matty converter be a better way to con to send audio to and from the constellation because it would have a DA AD stage? Mickey? Uh, yes. Uh, and I think uh, this was uh, similar to the question earlier. Well, uh, the DigiFace Dante was not uh, around when this pipeline was uh, first built out. Um, and it would require coordination uh, between uh someone to do tests and also someone to physically wire in the constellation via Maddie. Um, testing uh, very, is very important. Um, I'm not a fan of running audio into Blackmagic design hardware, if you guys, just in case you didn't know. <laughs> uh, and we're at the top of the hour, but we're going to go a couple over because there's so many things to talk about here. And I know this was a big effort on everybody. So next question, Alex. Next question is from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What other roaming crews at NAB caught your attention? And how did their approach differ from the OH roaming crews? Alex? Most of them were very more film-like and post-production. There was very little that was focused on live. I mean, that's the big thing we noticed the most was that, you know, live is hard and most people don't have live views and all the live equipment and so on and so forth. So um, that was the biggest thing that you saw. Big question next, Alex. Uh, next question is from uh, George Whittem in, in Venice, and, and George asks, uh, do you uh, list credit somewhere showing all of the people and, and gear contributors that made this happen? Alex? I don't, I think it was in the end of the streams. We had some, some of those things, but I'm yeah, not sure. there was a credit roll. Yeah, there was a credit roll that I think had pretty much everything that, that we needed there, yeah. A lot of people put in a lot of hours under Brian's direction and meetings and meetings. This was not a trivial thing in any respect. The, the, the human hours put into this would shock all of you if we'd actually taken a, a list of everything. Let's go on and get as many questions as we can before we have to sneak out. 
Uh, next question is uh, from Greg Greckmeyer, and Greg asks, can you briefly discuss the use of LucidLink? I know we use proxy 720p files for to help editors. Not sure how much uh, that was useful or helpful. Uh, nobody weighed in on this. Alex, did you have any uh, LucidLink? Did you hear any reports back? Uh, LucidLink worked very well. I mean, you know, LucidLink has has been has we've been using this for show after show, and we found it to be um, you know just a really core piece of what we're doing. I think the challenge we had in this case was the bandwidth from the venue. So while LucidLink worked great, getting things up uh, and the press, you know, and we, uh, you know, that's probably an area that we're going to explore um, is probably to have somewhere offsite that can you know that has a lot of bandwidth that can get us out out of the uh, out of the venue. So that's the the next thing for us to challenge. So while LucidLink has has proven to be very useful and it's useful and it, you know it worked well here, the problem we really had and we didn't get a, as much out as we'd like is because at the venue um, it was it was still pretty slow and and the problem is is that we also realized you know we had um, disaster group uh, Keenan uh, let us use his his uh, modem as well. And the problem is the files we were generating were just massive, you know, and and so even with uh, you know the wireless, it was hard for us to move files to do li you know live streams. Um, the uh, the disaster group would be perfect um, for that. It's really small, and really easy to use. We were really happy with it, um, but to move these giant you know gigabit files was it, it was just an it, we we really needed a gig connection or a, you know, 500 meg connection, something like that. And we just didn't, didn't have that on this one. So we're, we're working on making sure we have a solution for that in the, in the future. I want to give Brian just a second for the last word, because you were at the top of the pyramid of all the people who did this. Any last thank yous or comments you want to make before we move on? Just looking forward to the next show. So uh, stay tuned and thank you to everyone, especially thanks to Alex, because, um, you know, it's having the ability and freedom to be able to do these things that brings everyone together. So thank you all. And, and I, you did and a And I just want to thank the, the whole team. You know, again, we're doing things and figuring things out together that you can't figure out by yourself. We can't figure out the reason that we're, we're starting to push this outer envelope and show this is because we have people all over the world thinking about these things, trying to figure it out, having something succeed, some things fail, something somewhere in the middle. And but we would never be able to figure this out on our own. And there's no one that's doing this. So um, at this level, so uh, really just for everybody, there was over 50 people on the team total around the world. And uh, we just want to thank everybody for, for taking part in it because it's what makes it possible. And, um, and we're going to be doing it again soon. Our thank you end of shows for everybody who is involved, particularly today. You saw how many people it takes. When, when we say it takes a village, you've got a little insight into how many people it took us to do this kind of live show. Well, we do office hours every single day. So without our three-legged tripod of constituencies, that is the producers who are here, you're asking your questions and feeding them in. I'm sorry we couldn't get to each and every one, but there's so much technical information. I, I really enjoyed today, and I learned a lot, even though I was involved in the show directly. So I hope you did the same thing and felt that we covered as much as we possibly could. To the panelists who worked uh, that show and who worked this show every day, thank you for coming here. Without people answering questions, this would not happen. And uh, the back-end crew, you are always magnificent each and every day, and you make all of this possible. Without them, nobody would say anything. You have a black screen. That's unacceptable. After Hours takes, takes off right now. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you all tomorrow.
not getting stereo for my next break. See y'all tomorrow.